Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Ghost Spider Groupies, the podcast dedicated to Gwen Stacy of Earth 65, also known as Spider Gwen and Ghost Spider, where we review her comics, discuss news, and give our opinions about all things Gwen 65. I'm Pex. And I'm Abigail. So for this week's uh, Week 1 update, we kind of have a bit of Gwen-related news, well, mostly Gwen-adjacent anyway. First of all is that uh, Spidey and His Amazing Friends is now airing on Disney Junior. It's featuring you know, Peter, Miles, and Gwen as main cast members, and it's geared towards preschoolers. But if you want to see what that show is like, you can tune in to Disney Junior. Yeah, like, I think that sort of trio is becoming Marvel's go-to for spider stuff now since Into the Spider-Verse. Um, yeah, I guess you would call them the trinity of the Spider-Verse at this point. Yeah, I think I think there was a time where you would have had a lot of people like Ben Riley or Jessica Drew or, or people on it. But yeah, no, I think Gwen sort of Into the Spider-Verse sort of catapulted her into that spot. And um, yeah, I mean, the design is very different on that show. Like, they didn't make any changes to Pete or Miles' outfits, but like Gwen's got a completely different look. Like, yeah, the black um, the of her down. suit is now more navy. They put her um, a spider symbol like on her front. Yeah, maybe they were thinking like preschooler merchandise and stuff, where like you couldn't, you couldn't sell kids white, you couldn't sell parents white outfits for their kids pajamas and stuff. Um, yeah, but wouldn't... I, yeah, I, I did see the toys. They, they they do look pretty cool. Like they gave Gwen a motorbike or something. Yeah, they all have little vehicles in the show. Yeah, I think that's yeah. neat. Yeah, it's it's um it's only a little thing. It's like um little shorts. It's just a series of little shorts. Um, is the is like not very long episodes, like like only a few minutes each. So yeah, I think um it's a cool, you know, it's cool that they're using this character still at least in some places. because yeah. those kids who watch it, they'll, they'll grow up liking Spider Gwen. So you know, in twenty years' time, we might have enough people. To, to warrant an ongoing from Marvel. <laughs> yeah, which is good for us anyway. Yeah. Uh, next up, we got uh, colored preview pages for Dark Ages number one by Tom Taylor with art by Iban Coelho. And um, there was a whole little bit of discourse based off of uh, what was seen in the preview images versus what was seen in the cover. And it's kind of teeny tiny possible that Gwen might not make it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Gwen appears in like the original panels, as we've mentioned, uh, but the but the newer pages, she's not present. Like for the time jump that they make within the book, so it's yeah, it's possible she just doesn't she, she doesn't make it. Uh, so, but come yeah. or, come September, we'll see what uh, Dark Ages number one holds for us. Yeah, um, yeah, I guess we'll see how that pans out. Tom Taylor's a pretty consistently. I want to say good writer. Like I, I don't think I've read anything of his and gone. Well, I dislike this. I, I think I, I think I pretty consistently read Tom Taylor's work and I enjoy it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic for that run. Yeah, but Iban on art is always a win. Oh yeah, excellent artist. Iban Koe is really fantastic, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased. Uh, it's, it's a solid creative pairing right there. It's um, I don't think they could make a bad book between them. And speaking of September, we also have the uh, first preview pages for Demon Day's Cursed Web coming out September 1st. Yeah. Even though it doesn't show Gwen, it does show what uh, Mariko has been up to. Yeah, Um. so, I mean, Demon Days is still censored around. I think it's going to stay censored around Mariko. 
for the rest of the sort of the quarterly in the direction it's going. Um, and I say Gwen, it's not Gwen. What, what's her name? Reina? She's a schoolgirl named Reina Yuyami. Yes. Yeah. So she's got like spider-like stuff. Like she's got a stinger yo-yo and a pet spider and and she gets nicknamed Ghost. So I, I wouldn't call her Spider-Gwen, but she's absolutely an alternate version of Ghost Spider. And I'm very interested to see what direction that Peach Momoko takes the character in, because I think it looks like they're going to maybe be doing like some of the angst stuff. Um, she's got a sort of quest to find out what happened to her parents who were killed or something. Is that right? Yeah, according to uh, the little bio that Peach Momoko put on her Instagram. Yes. Uh, yeah, she's tracking down um, the Oni, you know, um, a Japanese demon that, you yes. know, killed her parents. Yes. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the Demon Days comic is centered around the sort of the back and forth between the Oni and the humans. Uh, and yeah, like the Oni is sort of an allegorical for like nature and the environment from the couple of issues I've read. In, in that run um they tend to like react negatively to human expansion and exploitation and um the main character mariko is like like a human oni like a like a hybrid and and the book's about that so i, I presume ghost spiders coming down on the side of the humans um for this issue at least and if ghost spider does appear in the in any upcoming demon days issues Will possibly cover it. Not sure, but depends on how big of a role that she's going to play in future issues. Yeah, I hope I hope Peach Momoko keeps um, Reina, right? Reina. Yeah, Reina, yeah. Reina on as a recurring sort of, I don't know, cast member, uh, like what she's doing for Mystique and Wolverine the Wolf, Logan the Wolf, even. Um, yeah, I hope that's the direction they take that character in because. Um, very, very cool concept stuff that Peach Momoko has put out. Very, very, uh, very, very cool stuff. Um, interested to see what happens with that. Yeah, me too. So uh, should we dive in into our main event here? Absolutely, yeah. Let's do it. All right. So today we're reading The Life of Gwen Stacy, which is the final arc of the uh, Jason Latour run. So last week we read Gwenum, where Gwen bonded with the Venom symbiote to exact revenge on Matt Murdock for her father's comatose state. And at the end of this fight, it resulted in Gwen being teleported to another dimension where she meets an alternate version of herself. As always, we'll put links in the description of what to buy and where to read and the reading list just so you can read along with us and so you can know what it looks like. I think just with this one, it is important to note that like it runs directly on from Gwenum, which runs directly on from Predators. These three arcs, the last three arcs of the Spider-Gwen run are happening chronologically in a very tight time frame and and they cliffhanger into each other. So if you are just sort of listening to this episode on its own, or if you haven't read the other two arcs or whatever, it's just, just something to bear in mind. Yeah, because uh, you really need to read previous arcs in order to make sense of the life of Gwen Stacy. Yeah, absolutely. So should I start diving in right now? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Right. So 
Gwen, under a dark cloud of emotion, finds herself in a diner on Earth 617 with the version of Gwen Stacy living there. She wonders if this is perhaps the same Gwen who died on the bridge and ponders whether or not to tell her. Overcome with frustration at the whole situation, Gwen 65 storms out of the diner while Gwen 617 follows, pleading with her to stay. Gwen 65 snarls that she doesn't belong in this reality and swings away, puzzling her counterpart with the use of we. Meanwhile, the Watcher of Earth-8 insists that they have to act to preserve the timelines from any drastic changes resulting from Gwen's darker turn or the sudden jump between dimensions that she made, much to the chagrin of Watcher 65, who thinks it's better to continue to not interfere. Seeking out Reed Richards, Gwen 65 scales the Baxter building, but its automated defense system electrifies and sends her flying. Gwen crash lands next to a dumpster with a newspaper reporting the death of Captain Stacy. Gwen 617 is visited by her version of Peter Parker, but she cancels her plans with him at the last minute. As Peter leaves, Gwen 65 reveals herself, having returned to talk more openly with her counterpart now. The two Gwens get hot dogs together, 65 emphasizing that they should not involve Peter. Explaining her situation, Gwen 65 says that she can't control her emotions with the venom in her skull. Gwen 617 explains that the death of her father has deeply affected her and that she has to resist the dark side too. Meeting Gwen 65 is like proof for her that there are different outcomes that her life isn't so small after all. Gwen 65 laments that she didn't stay at her father's side and her current trap situation in some kind of cruel purgatory. Gwen 617 furthers the point and compares their situation to Schrodinger's cat, where every moment we have hangs in the balance with infinite possibilities all tangled up, not knowing whether they'll end up as the dead cat. Back on Earth-65, Captain America visits George Stacy in hospital, saying that she still believes in Gwen and that she can still come home. Captain America also visits Matt Murdock, saying that S.H.I.E.L.D. has footage of him using his skills and powers and that his identity is revealed. The Gwens go to Tony Stark, who brings in Hank Pym, Ant-Man, with the theory of the multiverse and Captain America 65 method of punching holes through dimensions using thin spots in the membrane of the multiverse. They build a device that will let them move between dimensions together. The thin spot on Earth-617 is the spot for the fall from the George Washington Bridge. The Gwens make the trip together, offering each other words of advice and encouragement before Gwen 65 makes the jump, the portal carrying her back to Earth 65. Watcher 8 accuses the Morales Stacy siblings of Earth 8, Spider Boy and Spider Girl, of having been responsible for Gwen going missing in the multiverse and attempts to interrogate them. At this point, another alternate Gwen Stacy appears, older and bonded to a symbiote, and knocks the two out. The surprise alternate Gwen reveals that she is the Gwen from Earth-617, but older, now the greatest detective of her Earth, and that she is responsible for giving Gwen-65 the initial portal to Earth-617 back during her confrontation with Matt Murdock. Hinting at a council of spider-totem Gwen Stacys, she leaves the now humbled watches with the message that change does not diminish us. Reformed and returned to her home dimension, Gwen-65 reveals her identity to J. Jonah Jameson to be published in the Daily Bugle. Gwen visits her father in the hospital while he sleeps, listening to his heartbeat, leaving the Venom symbiote spiders to track him. Uncle Ben and Aunt May argue over the vengeful advice that Ben gave to Gwen for her past fight with Murdoch. He stands by what he said and storms out of their home. 
MJ and Glory, now sleeping together, get the news that Gwen has revealed her secret identity and that she has called band practice with the Mary Janes. The band meets up together along with Reed Richards. Gwen is deeply concerned with the emotions she's been putting into the Venom symbiote and proving Murdoch's belief that power corrupts everyone is wrong. Gwen says that she needs to change now how she's acting to move away from the dark path she's on. Making them aware that Mur Murdoch is still on the loose with her interdimensional web watch, they record a new song together as part of a plan to defeat him. Matt Murdoch leaves behind his role as Kingpin for the Hand, who were very displeased with his reckless behaviour. They send their ninja after him, and in a bloody fight he kills many of them. Gwen confronts the severely injured supervillain, and he explains that he stayed on Earth-65 thus far to teach Gwen more. She rebuffs him, saying that he could have acted to change the situation of being burdened with power, but he was free to give it up the whole time. Angry, he slashes at her in anger, but Gwen dodges and activates the track that the Mary Janes recorded and that Reed used technology to amplify. It blasts out loud enough to incapacitate Murdoch with his sensitive hearing. The sound and the catharsis of defeating Murdoch help Gwen and the Venoms to find their bond and balance. It morphs to resemble her original costume. Gwen snatches the web watch back and leaves him alone to the mercy of either shield or further hand reinforcements. With her identity public and Matt Murdock's threat subsided, Gwen hands herself into Jean DeWolf and the police. Her case goes to trial and receives widespread public attention. She hires Jennifer Hulk Walters, a wrestler, as her defense attorney. At the same time, no longer under the influence of Murdoch, District Attorney Foggy Nelson is able to have a change of heart and makes the ch charges against Gwen as light as possible. Gwen feels guilty over this development though, saying that there has to be consequences to what she's done. Jen exhorts Gwen to go easy on herself, saying that finding a jury of peers who could relate to her situation is impossible in a fair way. Subsequently, Gwen is handed a guilty verdict and is sent to a shield maximum security prison with other superpowered individuals. In order to keep them in line, all inmates have power-suppressing shock collars and are subject to a brutal, oversized guard staff. Gwen bumps into several members of her rogues gallery, including Cindy Moon, who gives her the cold shoulder. Titania, anticipating that newcomers to the prison often fight her on their first day, to prove a point owing to her size, preemptively attacks Gwen. The fight gets cut short, however, as their shock collars go off and guards seize them. As her sentence goes on, Gwen contemplates how she just wanted her new path to be fair, but considers that prison isn't fair at all for anyone involved, given how people are usually victims of their circumstances. Gwen is soon attacked by the Serpent Society, a gang within the prison allowed to do so due to the vulture Adrian Tombs. During his time there, he has risen to the top of a prison hierarchy where he has much sway with the guards and inmates. Gwen is at the mercy of their routine violent attacks now. She considers killing Toons, but stops herself, realizing that bad choices like that are why she is in prison. Gwen realizes that she could create an entertaining diversion for Toons and the prison in order to keep the fights off her back. Each day, Gwen challenges Titania to fights in the cafeteria, dropping quips and doing flips the whole time. The fights are brutal, but give her the edge within the prison social structure to keep Tombs off her back. Captain America approaches Gwen with an offer from S.H.I.E.L.D. to lead a team made from Gwen's rogues gallery in return for a government-monitored sort of freedom. Gwen refuses on principle, saying that she needs to be held accountable and wants to put something different out into the world when she gets out. 
A year passes and Gwen is out of prison, but plagued by nightmares of giving in to her darker impulses again. At the hospital, Gwen and her father George talk with Dr. Asim Strange regarding George's recovery. Strange says that while his physical recovery has gone miraculously well, he confides in Gwen that he is concerned for George's mental state, particularly as he may be stubborn to changes in expectations. The two get some fast food afterward with Gwen's public use of her powers causing some tension between the two and George insisting he can keep up on foot. George expresses frustration that Gwen is monitoring him with the symbiote spiders, but Gwen says that it's her concern for him that motivates her to do this. George expresses further concern about the symbiote, but Gwen insists that she brought it into the world and has to show it a better path. George has a moment of realization as Gwen's words reflect the lessons he taught her. They agree that despite poor public reception, they need to find a way forward with Gwen's now public superhero identity. George relents to letting Gwen give him a lift to the place they're going to, and Gwen agrees not to monitor him anymore. The Mary Janes offer to Gwen to do a band tour, where she could do superhero stuff at the same time, but Gwen isn't sure of this offer. Finally getting back into the hero spirit, Gwen re-begins her work as a superhero, saving a fireman in the burning building. When the other fireman asks who Gwen is, she gladly replies, I'm Spider-Gwen. And this has been... The Life of Gwen Stacy and the End of the Jason Latour Run. Yeah, it's been a ride. Um, it's, yeah, I'm, I really like this arc. I really very much enjoy this arc. Yeah, it makes this whole, I think it would add up to 40 issues if you include Edge and uh, the mini. Makes everything come full circle. Yeah, it's um, it's a long run and, and I'm grateful for it that we, we do have a long sort of complete arc with the same creative team. Not a lot of characters get that. Um, just a few episodes ago, we were talking with like the Jessica Drew podcast people, and they were saying how, how Jess has never really had that, um, at least not in the past 30, 40 years. So um, it's it's something that I, I think is really cool, and, and I really like the way it wraps up here. It's um, It's good. Especially since nowadays it's pretty rare for an ongoing comic to get hit 30 plus issues or even like 40. Yeah, I think I think it is right. I mean, there's definitely um, there's a few lines going at the moment. And um, Jason Latour got 34 issues. And I remember it being like a big thing for him looking back on it. It was like it was a big thing. Like you can see it in the end notes of um, I know the trade here um, and in the final issue you can see the Gwen Souls Down page, which talks about their opinions. But he talks about how like this is like an opportunity that you don't get very often. It's something you sit down and I'm very grateful for. But I mean, there's, there's a few runs like this at the moment. Uh, Donny Cates' Venom, uh, Jason Aaron's Avengers, Al Ewing's Immortal Hulk, Tana Hesse Coates' Captain America and Black Panther. So they, they, they do it more often now. But I think especially back then, they were relaunching a lot of stuff. And yeah, to get to numbers above 30 is a big deal. Yeah, especially if... Uh... If any sort of writer has their vision from beginning to end, every single detail has been plotted out and they know how it's going to end, regardless whether or not if it's going to be cancelled, it's ending on their own terms. Yeah, and it's really the creatively optimal way of going about it, because I think, I, I mean, I mean, I don't, you know, don't want to trash them too much. I think, I think people do that a lot. Um, and I don't, I don't want to devolve into just doing that, but um, DC and Marvel definitely do mess their um, writers and creative teams and stuff about quite a bit with, um, you know, all kinds of things. But particularly, I think the whole sort of situation where 
um, where stuff can just sort of get cancelled, you know, where you can be a writer and you just you just don't know if you're going to get 10 issues out of an ongoing. It's it's a rough situation. Which is why, you know, it's always very uplifting when, uh, you know, creators say that um, this was intended how it, how it was supposed to end and uh, they, they're glad that they got they got to be on this journey for 30 plus issues. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm, yeah, I, I think especially in light of how Maguire's run ended, this sort of whole, it, it brings it home how um, important all of this sort of is to to have, really. I mean, even if Jason Latour and, and Robbie Rodriguez weren't great people, obviously, I would prefer it with a different um, creative team to have had that many issues. Um, and I think it's a shame that, like, when we do have a non-problematic creative team, like, it doesn't have allegations against the creators. They don't get like a full run, and yeah, no, it's it's a. Uh, I'm I'm yeah, but but this this is is and it's it helps with I think reviewing it and looking at the arcs that they were going for uh, to see a sort of complete vision for this character, and it's not a closed off ending here. Like they clearly play. I think there's maybe three three sort of different options they sort of leave for the next creative team to pick up in different places. They sort of toss out different ideas and and leave different supporting cast arcs in sort of different places which could be picked up. So so yeah, I think um you know um there was a lot to sort of praise about the sort of format that the comic book took in the end here. In the long run it really helped it sort of to all pay off. And there's a lot of stuff here that I think you know, like the stuff with Matt Murdock, especially we were speaking about like last week, that's stuff which they started setting up in Edge of Spider-Verse number two. And that, that took like a good, you know, 30, 40 issues to get around to doing. So, um, you know, and, and it worked, you know, it paid off in a, in a meaningful and satisfying way. Um, I think particularly the stuff with Uncle Ben, that took a long time to sort of develop out. And it was done in the background and subtly until you sort of realize in this book that it's all a bit too late. But like, you know, at least Murdoch's story... His has come to an end. Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I, I mean, it is. And the thing is, they even leave Murdoch sort of in an open ending here. Like, he could either be dead. I think the uh, outcome confirmed in Maguire's run is he ends up in a shield prison, right? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so they, they, they leave, leave a few things open here. Um, obviously, one of the ones that I think they sort of, because obviously they try and resolve it here, right? They, they put Gwen in a place where she is in balance, in sync with the Venom symbiote of Earth-65. And I think that's a good place to leave the character in because, uh, and we didn't we didn't talk about it too much last week, but I do, I do prefer the Earth-65 symbiote power set to Gwen's sort of vanilla spider power set. Because it makes her stand out from the web warriors. It does. And I, I think it's interesting how it sort of it functions. Like I like the camo stuff. I like the way that she's able to deploy symbiote mini spiders i like the um the, the general look of it and the way that they can sort of use it in fights is very engaging as well because there's a few different points after this now which i think um it, it's cool and it also gives her a new box of toys to play with um with supporting cast anyway if the writers ever decide to uh, pair her up with the other symbiote heroes yeah and I, I think yeah no it does yeah it puts her in a interesting position for that yeah and um, it's, I think it's a really unique twist on the story as well, because, you know, you mentioned it last week, so many heroes have dark suit arcs, they come out of it, and, and they go back to their regular suit, and, and they, they, they don't really have much in the way of lasting impacts from it all the time. 
like as a character as a person um and, and their status quo but but absolutely like Gwen does not get her spider powers back she still relies on the symbiote to use them but what she's done is she's reached an, an emotionally more um constructive place and um using that is able to to better bond with the symbiote because the symbiote was never it was never a morally negative thing no it's it's just acting on what gwen's acting yeah it wants what gwen's wants so so when it bonded to her in that moment of like extreme anger and pain and trauma gwen never really like sort of got pulled out of that loop um that sort of spiral and she got stuck in it um and in this arc we see with with her, f- starting from the decision that she made not to kill Matt Murdock at the end of the last one through to this sort of being pulled into Earth 617 where she's given time to reflect and time to think about sort of contextualize what's happening to her as well and in Gwen 617 who I think is pretty cool and Gwen 65 are able to sort of give each other a interchange of sort of encouragement for their respective situations because obviously Gwen 617's path is w- would have ended up with her being tossed from the George Washington Bridge by the Green Goblin, presumably, because this looks like the sort of classic vanilla-flavoured Earth with sort of the uh, Ditko-era art style and stuff. So that would have presumably ended up with her getting killed. But through this encounter, she explores new things and she tries new things. And for Gwen 65, it's a grounding thing where she can more emotionally consider her path and her options and, and how you know, she doesn't have to give in to those darker impulses, seeing how Gwen 617 perseveres. Yeah, and um, I have to also have to add that even during the uh, Maguire run, Maguire, she um, picks up on that plot point of the symbiote and starts writing more about, you know, their relationship between each other. Yeah, and I think there is a lot to explore there. Like, that is a compelling dynamic and and the way that george stacy frames it as a sort of like a pet or a dog somehow like he says she always wanted a dog but no it's not it's her life partner right like like she's bonded to this thing and she created it and she has to look after it and and i think that as a as a narrative beat which comes up in the comics is good I find it's quite compelling and I wish they used it more like I think there's a tendency especially when Gwen gets pulled into crossovers and stuff like um for instance recently like last remains in that that writers just do not acknowledge that she is a symbiote powered character they treat her as if she's a regular spider powered character and i think that's fairly uninspired uh use of of her powers and stuff um it's like it's like using miles morales and jessica drew without having them use like bioelectric blasts and stuff sometimes you know when they're in a fight and you have all these spider characters they all just sort of look like they're doing the standard punch kick punch kick um and you're like you you want to see them you know, just visually, the symbiote could be used to make Gwen stand out and to sort of acknowledge that character's ability there. But at least uh, King in Black is where they do her right with her symbiote powers. Although um, we're still pretty unsure with that open ending. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, again, coming back around to sort of like, we have a whole arc now which would have involved this, uh, where they explored it, that, that's been sort of left unfinished, which is a real shame. Um, yeah, no, I think it's... Yeah, because um, I feel like they did shortchange Maguire with um, leaving Ghost Spider up in the air with her fate, but I do appreciate how um, at least she had some parts of her vision realized that um, since she did have an endgame in mind that she had since the beginning, 
and that got to be realized. Yeah, I, I think in some way, yeah, some parts of it did did get sort of yeah, it's something, I guess. Yeah, but you know, her stuff really is incredible. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good, and 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 I'm looking forward to being able to discuss that for sure. It'll be uh, it'll be a good time. Yeah. Yeah. So before we uh, move on to uh, more of our thoughts, we usually like to tally up our total in the Stacy swear jar so far. So, uh, she swears overall in this arc five times. Yeah, this was a this was a rough arc to be fair. <laughs> yeah. So twice in number thirty one, when they were at the bridge after Gwen flips six one seven off, she's like Gwen fucking Stacy and her stupid fucking speeches. Which is kind of funny when you think about it because everyone's always calling out Gwen on her so-called dopey speeches. Yeah, that's the that's the irony of it there. It's um it's Gwen getting frustrated at Gwen <laughs> for doing Gwen things. Yeah. And then next in thirty two, she's like, The butt is that Murdoch has my stupid fucking web watch. And that's when she tells the Mary Janes the bad news of having to confront Murdoch for the final time. Right, right. And um, in 33, like while she's in prison getting um, dragged around by the guards and stuff, she was admonishing herself for being naive, for thinking that her trial would be fair. And she's like, I'm a shitty tourist. Oh, yeah. She doesn't say it out loud, but that's just what yes. she thinks. Yeah, I see it in the captions here. Yeah. And then the final time in this arc was in 34 where she was describing the first day she got her spider powers to George since they were talking about dreams. She was a man that first day. I really lost my shit because what person wouldn't be when uh, they discover that they're suddenly a spider? Yeah. Yeah, they, um, that was a good, that was a good reference there, yeah. So the total of the Stacy swear jar as of the life of Gwen Stacy is $39. Well, there we go. That is the Latour runs profanity. I don't know if we'll be able to do this for the Maguire stuff, will we? The swearing is dialed way down in the Maguire era. She still cusses, but not as much as uh, when Latour wrote her. Yeah. Make, make Gwen Stacy swear again. <laughs> yeah. Maybe prison mellowed her out because, you know, people have different experiences when they get out of prison. Maybe, but the prison experience here doesn't look very mellowing um, in nature, I have to say. You'd think getting beat up almost every day, that would make you cuss even more? For sure, it doesn't seem like the kind of environment that, that would prompt somebody to cut back on cussing. But, you know, different writers, different opinions of what they have about cussing. Yeah, I think I think maybe Maguire just to sort of Gwen's voice quite differently. Maybe that's more it, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, next writer, make Gwen Stacy swear again. Yes, please. Yeah, I think that's that, that was a big sort of sort of helps her um, dialogue to sort of stand out more on the page compared to other characters, I think. And it matches her sort of vibe and style more. Um... You know, makes her more angsty because right now I think she's supposed to be like 20 now. Yeah, I think at the end of this arc, Gwen is now 20. Like, because uh, she, she was what, like 19 for all the other arcs, but she's... She spends, like, what, at least a year in prison. And her trial was six months. Her trial was six months, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think they don't necessarily, like, serve the full sentence, do they? Is that, is that right? No, because remember during her nightmare, she was counting down the minutes of when she actually gets released from prison. Which is interesting, because 
she's actually out of prison when she's having this nightmare. And I think this sort of, it looms over this book that while Gwen has gained the mastery over her darker impulses, that they are still there. And the current situation with, it, it feels conditional the way they talk about it here. Like the way Gwen says, um, the first things it learned in this world were my pain, not with my anger and pain and confusion, but we're at peace now. And for as long as that lasts, it's my responsibility to show it a better way with the idea that it's possible that it might not last and they could go all angsty again with it. Because I think inner demons is something that people have forever. Like no matter how happy you are, you're always going to have your demon. Yeah, I guess. And and I think the thing that they said they want to drive home here is that really like these emotions, they, these, these feelings, they wouldn't go away if the symbiote went away. It's, it's more that the more um, she sort of has the symbiote to use when they do get bad. You know, obviously the regular person can't go fight a whole police force, but, yeah, but no. Gwen can if she's upset enough. So, um, yeah, uh, that, that's sort of the whole sort of angle with that. And I find that interesting that sort of and it does hang over even future comics after this, that Gwen sort of could sort of slip back into that mode almost. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think the uh, thing is with a Gwen 65 and during this arc that's kind of curious is whether or not if she actually was destined to encounter 617. I think the paradox makes it seem as if it is destiny. Because um, middle-aged uh, 617 mentioned that she and the council wanted to reinforce the decision to not kill Matt Murdock and Gwen 65 meeting 617 is to ensure her own existence. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things going on there, like because because obviously it's playing around with the idea of free will a bit, and and that's sort of what Earth Eight and like the Earth Eight adjacent stuff is about. But like the way I see it is, if Gwen doesn't choose to save Matt Murdock there, like if she chooses to kill him or let him be killed, that they wouldn't have teleported her to Earth Six One Seven. But once she does do that, she's in the right frame of mind to sort of emotionally. Like recover and and accept new ideas and advice, whereas she wasn't in the headspace for that prior to that point. And they they emphasized that like it was still her decision. Like she they they didn't do it before she killed that murder. They just did it when she chose not to. And at that point, then Gwen six one seven can use this Gwen as the catalyst for her own existence and her own character development. Um, so yeah, it sort of creates this loop that doesn't really, again, I, I'm still not sure how everything lines up in time and space in this. It really, yeah. it's all over the place. I think in the character bio for Gwen 617, it says in brackets, enough time travel Latour. Yes. Um, and yeah, I, I don't, I wouldn't want to see a return to the time travel aspect of Gwen's interdimensional stuff because it just doesn't, the internal logic of it isn't well laid out, I don't think. And it's a frustrating read um, a lot of the time. I, yeah, not great. Yeah, time, yeah, time travel's a whole nother can of worms to deal with. Yeah, it is. And um, yeah, but but the idea that you sort of have in the same arc like a, a younger Gwen 617 and an older Gwen 617 is it's a lot to sort of wrap your head around. And, and they don't, yeah, again, they just don't really make the logic of that make sense. Yeah. But the biggie around this arc, well, the other biggie anyway, is that, you know, Gwen's going public with her secret identity. 
I think do you think this was much better handled than when Peter Parker? Um yeah, like it's clearly the direction they wanted to take the character in. They looked at the Gwenamark, they looked at a lot of the things they had Gwen do throughout this book, and the guilt that she has over Peter is still there. Like the, the all the things she's done sort of wrong in this run and sort of the internal narrative has to have some sort of consequence for that, I think. And with her identity becoming public, with her having this prison sentence, it's sort of like that debt to the narrative is paid, if that makes sense. Like they... Yep. the the guilt over those particular things is sort of alleviated and there's a resolution found forward for Gwen's angst over her place within justice and where she fits into that. Yeah, and if you uh, look back at a little, initial point of revealing her secret identity was to get out of Murdoch's thumb because, you know, if she goes public, then that means uh, Murdoch's actions as Kingpin goes public too. Yeah, yeah, um, and it stops Murdoch from holding that over her head. It allows her some control over that situation because obviously a lot of people were already suspecting it. The Wolf, Punisher, um, a number of supervillains all all find out about Gwen's secret identity, and I think it does get to a point where it feels very untenable within the narrative to say that Gwen isn't Spider Woman. They have lots and lots of moments like especially like this like interactions with the public where people are very suspicious that you know Gwen Stacy has gone missing and at the same time Spider-Woman is on this particularly brutal vigilante arc so the people are sort of conscious of it within the books and so it sort of just makes sense it sort of just resolves all of the tension around a lot of the things to do with that especially since you know her uh, guilty verdict it wasn't because of uh, they're afraid of what she's done in the past they're afraid of the things that she could do yeah i thought that was i think that was a sort of just a general vote of no confidence from the people largely in new york they do not yeah they want to see whether or not if she uh, belongs in the streets just for now and see what a year in prison for her yeah i think even with the public identity stuff even with having spent that time in prison gwen's relationship with the public at large is still in a yeah it's still kind of strained like Hmm. some people still support her in the mcguire era but there are others who are still kind of leery around her yeah the status quo stays in place where gwen has to be conscious that her identity is public the different reactions that people will have to that and the different roadblocks that puts up to her as a superhero and as a regular person just living in the world but you know at least this gwen didn't have to uh, sell a relationship to keep her identity intact yeah that that felt very i think i think that is a, conceptually is very contrived the way they did it with peter park and civil war like this isn't uh, like a reset to a status quo through some like magic stuff this is a evolution of Gwen's status quo uh, as a result of the choices that she is making within the book um and yeah it puts her in an interesting place where she has a public identity she wants to continue superheroing she no longer has the police on her back in the same way she's had for all of these issues um and but it does give her friends and family targets on their backs 
Yeah, and I mean, it was already rough for them because basically all the supervillains knew who she was. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, now it's um, I think particularly we've seen more recently how that can go wrong. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm. I think it's it's, it's an interesting. It's it's a thing they spend a lot of time with. I think Maguire's run does is this aspect of her having a public identity and having to just consider that when she does stuff. Yeah. Like I, yeah, I feel like Maguire handled the whole um, secret identity on 616 and being public on 65. Yeah. Very well. Yeah. I thought that was, I thought that was an interesting way of doing that. Should we uh, move on to a middle-aged Gwen, Gwen 617? Yeah. I mean, I, I thought, I thought, I thought she was a really interesting character. Like having, like, because cause obviously Gwen sixty five isn't science savvy, and she's not very um, like she's just she's never been inclined that way, and and I think that she's obviously musical in place of that. So what we have here is the like the classic Gwen Stacy. What if the classic Gwen Stacy became a superhero, and that's more what Gwen six one seven is. Um, she's much much closer. Yeah, since the elephant in the room around uh, Gwen six one seven is that she didn't die at at the George Washington Bridge at the hands of the Green Goblin, which is essentially makes her a variant. That's me using Loki speak again, even though technically her Nexus event would be meeting Gwen 65. Yeah. So yeah, the point at which the timeline diverges is, is when Gwen 617 has this encounter and sort of resolves differently. And I think one of the things which should have comes out of it is almost like how, peter parker like the distrust of peter parker works to her advantage in this and maybe gwen 65 fostering that a little bit and showing her that on her own she can you know become something different was was what really pushed her in the direction that she went in and and of course she she creates or ends up being bonded to another symbiote yeah, it's made unclear whether or not if it's a uh, Clintar like six one six or if this is just another lab grown version because that would have meant if this is a Clintar, then she would have to have evaded Goblin long enough for Peter to bring the original Venom symbiote to Earth. Yeah, because because Gwen six one uh, Gwen six one Earth six one seven is closer to to earth 616 then you have to presume the symbiotes function like they would on 616 on 617 um but i guess i guess maybe it's a similar one to it could just be that you know latour intended this to be a, a, sim, a similar symbiote to to what we have on earth 65 and that was the direction he was going with it but but yeah it's not it's not immediately evident no because um if it was a clintar i think i would have expected a much more elaborate costume from Gwen 617 because she still wears it as her costume. It's more like a secondary thing, but she just mostly wears uh, her death coat and large sunglasses. Yeah, like, yeah, no, I saw that. The, the big sort of green, is it a trench coat? Yeah, like a big green hooded trench coat. Yeah. And the um, sunglasses, are that is that just to make her look intimidating? I don't know. Maybe it's a similar thing like what Jessica Drew had going on with the biker outfit, where she has a big pair of sunglasses as well. Probably, but like interesting choice of wardrobe for Gwen Six One Seven. Yeah, it's um, it's 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 an interesting look, and I think 
like it's also a way of saying that this is the direction Gwen sixty five could go in, um, as being a sort of symbiote bonded detective. Like I absolutely think that is something Gwen sixty five could do, um, and would wouldn't be out of character at least. So yeah, a lot of a lot of what they're doing here is just sort of talking about what in this arc is sort of what direction Gwen could now go in after having now sort of resolved to do better and and having spent time trying to, to prove it to people that she wants to do better. Um, what, how exactly she does that? I kind of want to circle back to when the two first met each other during the, the diner scene when 617 was concerned that 65 was her clone. Right. Because she was mentioning about her semester with Miles Warren, how everything was just centered around cloning. And then... Yeah. Gwen just referred to Miles later as her creepy biology professor. Yeah. So I'm kind of thinking that, um, do you think 617 was also leery around um, this dimensions Miles Warren? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you have to imagine that the the sort of the 616 plot line where Miles Warren is somebody who clones Gwen and Pete and is sort of madly in love with Gwen in a sort of wholly inappropriate relationship. Because she was like, please don't be my clone. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, bad, bad news for her down the line, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, there are, but even though she's not a clone, she's essentially a variant. And um, Gwen 617 hinted at other variants of herself, which formed the Council of Spider Gwens, as I'm colloquially calling it. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Like, they. Like, I think they play it up a little bit, and then they dial it down, like, she sort of, like, goes back and says, well, it's more like, you know, we meet for brunch and stuff. But but there is this sort of implied existence of more than one spider totem Gwen Stacy out there in the multiverse, and that they network, and they, and they, they meet up and stuff, so... Because the only yeah. two known members of the council are 617 and uh, 8, since... Um, uh, Charlotte and Max mentioned that they show up on their doorstep all the time. Yeah, yeah, I think I think eight is implied as being part of it as well, for sure. I think I think what was interesting was the sort of because obviously this is a retcon in like there were no spider powered Gwen Stacy's five years before this was written. So so the the way the logic, the fact that the council wasn't present at the Spider Verse event where the um, inheritors were killing all of the spider totems. Was that uh, they they didn't need to act because they were already there? You know, Gwen was already there and and fighting. I don't know if that worked as an explanation. They just chose to. Uh, I'm just gonna compare it to that scene in Mean Girls where Regina George is just um, standing there watching the whole school fall apart. I don't think I've seen that. Because um. That's how I imagine what the council was like during Spider-Verse. They just stood there and watched. Yeah. Yeah, it's very it, it feels passive. I I don't I don't know if they needed to do that to be like there's a whole like cuz cuz once you establish that they have like this unilateral ability to sort of just act and then whenever they don't do it, you have to ask yourself why they're not doing it and it becomes this whole thing. It, yeah, it doesn't again the internal logic of it doesn't quite follow through. I think it's too big of a thing to just introduce. But uh, what I did like about, I think we're going to start moving on to um, Earth 617 itself. I loved how uh, 
Robbie Rodriguez um, tried to capture the Silver Age comic book style because this is very uh, John Romita Sr.-esque because I think uh, he was the artist back in the 70s since the night when Stacy died was uh, published in 73. Yeah, I loved how he uh, captured the uh, Romita style, but at the same time, it's Rodriguez's style. Yes, uh, I think this is probably Robbie Rodriguez at his his best. I think knowing it was coming to an end, he probably put in a bit more time with it. And and yeah, like the the stuff on Earth six one seven looks good. Like I think, it, and it still looks like Rodriguez's art style. But like you say, it's got all these other characteristics that that make it feel like it is in that that sort of that world. Yeah, it resembles newsprint, that old fashioned newsprint that books used to be printed on. Yeah, I wonder if that was Rico Renzi's idea. Yeah, since you know Gwen sixty five looks so out of place in six one seven. Yes. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Like you have a couple of panels where it's like very like it's all grainy and then and then Gwen walks up and she's all clean and the colouring and it's yeah, it's it's interesting way of doing it. Actually I thought it was interesting because they have a lot of panels where Gwen six one seven and Gwen sixty five stood next to each other. And obviously Gwen six one seven looks a lot like Gwen six one six, but they still look like the same, but not but like still different. If that makes sense, it's quite interesting. I think it's done well. It's done in a way which sort of because yeah, it's supposed to tell them apart. Yes, but but they still seem like the same person. If that makes sense. Yeah, and but what's interesting about six one seven is that even though it's been established that uh, it diverged from the prime universe when Gwen sixty five arrived and met six one seven. This reality was already established back in 2006 during the Doc Samson mini. Yeah, that's strange. So I, I have to imagine they just used the same name for the Earth. They didn't, like, it's not like Latour and Rodriguez was specifically trying to evoke the world that was established in the in the Doc Samson mini. Yeah. mini. I think they picked 617 because it is, it is one of the closest numbers to 616 and they wanted to show that. Yeah, I'm just imagining that maybe um the Doc Samson mini, like, probably chronologically takes place after um, the life of Gwen Stacy, since in that reality, a nightmare has already risen into power. Yeah, it looks like things get pretty rough for a while in, in 617 from the Doc Samson mini. I, I have to have to hope things are a bit bright. <laughs> um, after. Well, they only, um, they only visit it in this arc and Doc Samson, so they don't really have to do that again unless... If someone else wants to pick up six one seven, yeah, I, I guess um, it's. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, the, the sort of I, I'd like to see Gwen six one seven. I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind seeing Gwen six one seven again. I think it's a cool. It's a cool character they introduced in, um, and like the sort of the older detective type vibes to Gwen's very reminiscent of the path that her father went on. So, yeah, I think it's a cool character. It's a cool character. Yeah, she's. Th- you know, the multiverse's greatest detective. Yeah. Uh, wait, the multiverses? Oh, oh, not the multi... Just Earth-617's greatest detective. Yeah. I'm going to say the whole multiverse, is a, that's a big... That's a big place. <laughs> yeah, but she's very knowledgeable about it anyway. Yeah, for sure. I think that's what it comes down to. Is Yeah, she's just, just very proficient, I, I would imagine, then. Because I think um, she probably has the same level of knowledge of the web of reality as um, Madam Web. Yeah, that's true. 
That's a good one to compare to. Like, even though Madam Web probably is, like, leagues ahead in knowledge about the web of reality, at least Gwen 617, like, has some, you know, um, yeah, basic knowledge about how, you know, the multiverse works. Yeah, and I think, I think that sort of fits with the general tone of what they're going for here, is sort of having all of the Gwens very aware of their, <laughs> of their place in the multiverse. Yeah, they're basically playing what if at this point. Like, what if we didn't die at the bridge? Yeah, and I'm I'm glad they glad they didn't. Um, yeah, it's working out well. Um, yeah, so um, let's uh, let's look at who else yet. So there's Matt Murdock. Sort of has the conclusion. Uh, I guess we touched on it a bit earlier, but I think it's quite interesting because his his idea is that the power you take on corrupts you, and he feels alone in that and he wants to see that reflected in Gwen and that's been his whole thing. Um, and in this arc, Gwen basically comes up to him and says that, you know, you could have let go of that power at any point, but basically he's only able to do it through self-sabotage. And like a lot of the stuff he's doing is essentially self-sabotage. It is sort of like he hints at Gwen, the weaknesses in the Venom symbiote. He uh, deliberately and recklessly handles like the hands forces to the point of them getting upset with them. Uh, he gets sloppy and gets caught by shield. Like he's he sort of yeah. Like it says here, Gwen says you needed the thrill of being caught. You've been begging for someone to stop you. Like because he feels so terrible about what he's doing, he's sort of not doing it competently anymore. I think it was because um, committing suicide would be too easy for him. Remember, he almost did it until he spotted Gwen outside of his apartment one day. Maybe I think maybe he just didn't want to be alone in that pain, and he lashed out in a unconstructive way, in a way of trying to bring down other people to his level and trying to, instead of, instead of like him trying to sort of lift himself up for other people as a sort of, he was so obsessed with the power that he had, he couldn't even fathom letting go of it outside of the sort of weaknesses that he left open in it for him to be defeated. And at the end of this, he doesn't have any power. You know, and like once he loses his power, the comic, you know, the comic doesn't bother itself with, you know, whether or not he dies. Like once once he's powerless, once he has no web watch, once he has no hand position, he um, as a person has no philosophical point to make anymore. He's just your average broken person and sort of, you know, like Gwen, too, also loses a lot. But instead of it being this unconstructive sort of self-sabotage approach, Gwen sort of has a controlled fall from, like, she sort of relinquishes her freedom and stuff willingly and tries to think very conscientiously about how she can use her powers and how she should limit them and and does it that way. And that works out in her favor better. And I, something uh, funny that I also wanted to point out during Murdoch's fight with the hand and later Gwen is he's fighting with a katana still in his stomach. Yes. Um, Matt Murdoch in this, he is, he takes so much punishment from those hand ninjas there. He looks rough and he's still competently fighting even with all of that damage in him. Like, um, like you'd think with that katana in the, his stomach, it would hinder him a little, but he's just like, Oh, that's there. Well, anyway, yeah, he just he just pulls it out like it's nothing, and you know his abilities don't really grant him that level of sort of he doesn't have invulnerability or or healing factor. But I guess he's just capable of taking a lot of punishment. Perhaps it didn't land in anything vital or tear any important 
abdominal muscle no. somehow. No, he probably used his super senses to uh, indicate what's the right way to pull it out. I can see that being a good sort of way to head cannon out of the sort of madness that is Matt Murdock taking the sword to his stomach and surviving it. But yeah, he's he's fine for it. And the thing is, the the bit which breaks him really is when Gwen calls him on what he's doing. You know, calls him out for essentially hoarding all this power, even though it makes him miserable. And the only way he's able to let go of it is through getting other people to forcibly take it from him through sort of these sort of small acts of self-sabotage he does. He gets so angry at this concept, at this idea, the fact that Gwen doesn't get corrupted, that he, he lashes out and he actually attacks her directly. And I think that's the first time that he's really done something like that. He He's always very defensive or not even... He, he doesn't rarely attack... He doesn't really attack Gwen at any point particularly. And yet... No, he just he, keeps antagonizing her. Yeah, he has this end goal of like corrupting her. And, and the moment here where he realizes he, he goes for the swing with his katana there and yeah, he, he sort of loses it. And it's at that, that point he is defeated, I think, ideologically within the comic book. Once he realizes he can't get through to Gwen and he lashes out in anger over that. And, you know, being defeated by, you know, we could say symbolically the bond between Gwen and her friends, since it's their music that incapacitates him. Yes, I think it was an interesting way of doing it. But but yeah, I think it it feels very poetic to have the sound be the, the, the beginning and the end of, of it. The irony of it is Matt Murdock is like listening to the Mary Janes all the time. Like in this comic book, he's always listening to Face It Tiger. There's like two or three times where you see him listening to it. And for it to be the thing that defeats him, this obsession with this person and this band is very amusing. Being defeated by um, his favorite artists. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a raw deal. And, and the way that at the very moment that Matt Murdock is defeated, so Gwen sort of finds that balance with the symbiote and it morphs back into her original outfit. It's the first thing she does with it once she's sort of back in rhythm with it. She she hasn't morphed back into her original outfit. And yeah, I think that was an interesting choice. Personally, I really prefer the Gwenham look. But yeah, we're very much back to the standard look here. Yeah, but you know, in uh, Maguire's run from time to time, she'll uh, relapse into her Gwenham look only when the situation calls for it. Yeah, I love it when that happens. Yeah, it's always really cool when, when the Gwenham stuff sort of comes out in the Maguire run. But yeah, that's going to be something that we're going to be exploring for the next few weeks anyway, so... Yes, I'm excited. Yeah, for sure. We actually get a like um, like a big happy for George Stacy. Yes, he was out of action for the Guanamark, but he's, he's back at the end here. And uh, he's not a police officer anymore. He does want Gwen to... Well, he does want to support Gwen in her superhero stuff. And and there's this concern from Doctor Strange that he would, like, push himself too far. Isn't his exact line, I'm at the risk of sounding like a, a crystal-polishing quack? Yeah, um, yeah, a bit of a jab at his alternate self. But, um, yeah, so the, yeah, he says his spirit is what concerns him. I think, at, you know, after almost getting killed by a giant rhino... Yes, okay. yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, it's really rough for George Stacy. Actually, you know, Doctor Some Strange's speech that he gives is really good because he talks about how George is very resilient, he's very tough. It's possibly why he survived so well, how he's physically recovered so well. 
but patients like him can cling too tightly to that sense of self, to who, they're belie- to who they believe they're expected to be. Nothing will put him back in his hospital faster than trying to live up to those expectations. If you want him to be at his best moving forward, you have to realize that your expectations must change. And I think philosophically, that's good stuff. And it fits in with the theme that this is different. This is an evolution of these characters that they are trying to change and adapt to their trauma and their circumstances um, in constructive ways. And there's a really big emphasis on that. And I think the heart to heart that George and Gwen have here is very interesting because there is a lot of tension between them because they've both done a lot and they've both said a lot and they're both in a very different place and they don't feel like maybe they're being viewed as valid by the other, but they sort of have this sort of very tense they work it out on the way to, to getting food. But yeah, and, and in the in the end, I'm really glad because they sort of, they acknowledge each other's sort of perspective quite well there. And yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm George is in a much better place than where he was at the start of this comic, for sure. Yeah, yeah it's always very touching uh, whenever the writer like pairs George and Gwen together, like with their father-daughter relationship. Like, yeah, it's always so touching. Yeah. It's it's the emotional core of this book. And I think after having like maybe six or seven issues where he's essentially just in a hospital bed, this is welcome. It's, uh, it, you know, it, to have the last issue essentially be one long conversation between George and Gwen, I think was the right decision. Um, and um, even during the Maguire run, there's more moments of uh, George and Gwen together since, yes. um, according to Maguire, it was one of her favorite things to write other yeah. than... Gwen not having to do laundry anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think, yeah, I mean, the laundry thing's funny, but um, like Gwen and George's relationship being the sort of this father-daughter dynamic being the, the, the emotional core of this comic book does carry through in Maguire's era quite well. And yeah, no, I, I like you say, it's always good when the writers pair these two up because they do have and it comes through in the book, they do have a very genuine care and concern for each other that conflicts with what they do as people. And that and that creates a really interesting tension for those two characters that drives these conversations. Even back during in the Wolverine annual when George was unaware that Gwen and Laura switched bodies, he still saw Gwen as Gwen. Yeah, no, he's still very uh, supportive in that. And I think, like, uh, even Tom Taylor writing George Stacey was really good in that, yeah. Um, he's he's a nice guy. He's a really nice chap. Like, even even as a police captain, he was still very, very sort of, like, focused on the ethics of it and whether or not he was doing the right thing, which is sort of why he quits in the end, really, right? Because he was doing the wrong thing as, as, a, as being, being, being a police captain. And um, I think the his, his resolution here, and this sort of very... Because it feels you know, angsty, and it is, but it's also kind of hopeful at the same time. And and I think, you know, being able to acknowledge that trauma and that pain in each other is like, yeah, it's it's really nice. It's a really nice issue. I, I'm going to say number 34 is probably one of my favorite Spider-Gwen issues. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's really good stuff. Who else do we get? Like, we got more of the Mary Janes. Yes, yeah. Um, so this is the um, arc where they confirm Mary Jane and Glory in an intimate relationship, which is you know great for them, good for them. We yes. love to see it. Um, unfortunately, it's still sort of kept in the in the B plot of the book. It's still done in the panels, 
um, and never really like said out loud very often. But yeah, the Mary Janes come back and they sort of they coordinate to help with that plan against Matt Murdock and they all hug sort of. And um, yeah, I think the conversation they have is a lot of Gwen monologuing. There's not a lot of input from them here. Like there was in the last conversation at the when when they spoke. No, their last conversation in 34 was just a flashback to proposing to Gwen that they go on world tour, but Gwen's not up to it. Yeah. Yeah, one of those one of the one of those things. Cuz you know, they're still uh, being supportive about Gwen's superhero career. Yeah, they they are. I don't, you know, even when like MJ was suspecting it and getting annoyed about it, I do think that that generally speaking, it, on the whole, they were they were never they never resented Gwen for her her decision as a superhero. It was never something they didn't want her to do. There's obviously complications with it, and they were always worried about those. But as a concept, Gwen being a superhero, I don't think is a problem for them, in the way that it is a problem for Captain Stacy. There isn't the same tension there. It's a different kind of one, and it tends to revolve more around the commitment, the time commitment to each other, and the band more broadly. That tends to be where they, they sort of have some tension there, and and I think a lot about just being able to have Gwen like monologue and talk about her feelings with them, is very cathartic because obviously she was holding all of that back up until this point, and um, they're more than happy to help her and stuff. And it's yeah, it's just it's just nice to have them like you know be able to know what Gwen's going through, for the first time, properly, within this book. That's a nice it's a nice thing to have there. I think. And, you know, as we get into Maguire's run uh, later on, you know, the band is still, like, more or less supportive of uh, Gwen's superhero career going public. Well, Betty and Glory are supportive, but MJ, on the other hand... Yeah, I think yeah. we can get into that one when we get to that. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's, 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 that's something there. It's... Yeah, it's, it's a complete 180. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Maguire wrote MJ very differently, but yeah, like Latour's MJ is very, I think, more supportive. The character's more, um, more, uh, more inclined to sort of validate Gwen, which uh, I think I I prefer that in a lot of places. Um, the way it's used here, at least, um, although she's used very differently in Maguire's run. Um, but yeah. we'll get to that part when we get to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we will. Um, so uh yeah, and we also had uh sort of the last panels of Uncle Ben in this where he's uh, he's having a fight with Aunt May and essentially it appears that Aunt May has disagreed with what he said to Gwen about killing Matt Murdock um in the last arc, but he stands by it and he's clearly very angry and bitter about it and he storms out the house. That's the last time we see and hear from Uncle Ben and Aunt May in the Spider Gwen comics. And in the Ghost Spider comics, which is a pretty dark ending for that character, I think, to sort of leave it on that note, um, that he is very much, and I think remains embittered by his, by what happened to Peter, and by the whole situation with the justice system after that fact, and the whole situation with Gwen having this power, and yeah, it's done a number on him, and it's a slow burn. It's sort of it's sort of something they build on from the very first arc of this comic, and it ends poorly for him. I think Uncle Ben is very much, a, 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 you know, Uncle Ben and Aunt May are very much a losing party, a losing sort of group, 
out of all of the sort of Spidey Gwen main cast, if that makes sense. Yeah, but I feel like, you know, they got some sort of consolation since Murdoch's out of the picture now. Yeah, um, I guess they have that. I, I don't know if that's an emotionally constructive thing to have. I, I guess the danger going away is good. Um, but, like, again, indulging that vengeance for Uncle Ben, I don't know if that would be a great thing. No. Yeah. But anyway, you know, it was, you know, their decision to drop the Parkers in order to make room for other people that haven't showed up in a while, so. Yeah, I mean, it, it's if it's it's mostly, I'd say it's more or less complete. It's obviously, obviously something which could uh, have more development, but um, I think what we have of Uncle Ben and Aunt May is, it's a complete arc for Uncle Ben there, and a resolution to Aunt May and Gwen's uh, relationship sort of happened a good 20-odd issues ago, so I don't feel like we need them back in the comic. It would be my preference that they do properly flesh out what's happened to them, but it's not essential. I don't think it's it's fine. I think, like you say, those are the characters as well that they can spend time on. Yeah, and uh, we also got, who else, a look at um interesting choices for the S.H.I.E.L.D. prisoners. Yes, I thought the prison stuff was very interesting because they're able to use a lot of the villains they've introduced at once. Um, we get Cindy65, who sort of doesn't really want to have anything to do with Gwen. Um, we get Vulture again. Vulture's role as a sort of... I think he's supposed to be the uh, the prison kingpin, I think would be the term. Yeah, he is. and And he's very much at the top of the food chain which is different for a vulture, I guess. Um, but yeah, um, he's very manipulative. And I think maybe he plays on on boredom, maybe? Like, is he playing on, like, I don't know. Because I think the one of the um, uh, rules of prison is that, you know, if you want to survive, uh, you also have to get on the kingpins or queenpins. Depends on what who's the boss. You know, their good graces or else. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a limit to it though, isn't there? Where with all of these fights that Gwen has with Titania, it means that Vulture is not as able to properly orchestrate these violent attacks. And I have to wonder if like he he's very influential, but he's not he's not at the point where he's able to be authoritative or dictatorial with that power. He is more just very very influential. And um, I kind of find it weird that they use uh other villains from people's rogues like uh. Diamondback, who's a Captain America villain, and then Titania, who's a She-Hulk villain. Yeah, I thought Titania was interesting with the way they use that character. It's definitely more as a comedy thing. And this version of Titania is different from her 616 counterpart, since her prime counterpart doesn't have those metal arms. Yeah, I, I think it was a cool design. Um, let me have a look here. Like, yeah, pink hair, uh, two metal arms. Yeah, it's, it's definitely it's a really unique look, I think, and yeah yeah it seems like based on cindy's dialogue that she's the biggest bully of the prison yeah i thought it was she's the biggest person in the prison at least yeah that's another rule of uh, surviving prison you want to uh, publicly humiliate and take out the biggest bully in the prison just so the others can respect you yeah at least that trope comes up so much that they sort of felt the need to make fun of it here and it being this thing where the idea that it's happened so much to Titania, this trope just keeps happening, that she's now just got this preemptive anger that she levels at anybody who just enters the prison is very amusing. I think it's it's, it's sad, but... 
Yeah, but you would think that eventually Titania would get bored of beating up new prisoners. Maybe if she keeps getting beat up, if it keeps happening, then she's got to sort of keep up, sort of dishing out the pain, I guess. Which is, which is funny, but it's sad. I guess that she just wants to uh, keep up appearances as the biggest bully. Yeah, yeah, and and she does get a hard time, I guess, in the end with what Gwen does. Um, definitely, um, yeah. But we will see more of Titania media-wise in Disney Plus's She-Hulk next year, portrayed by Jamila Jamil. Yes, look forward to that. Very interesting casting. Very much look forward to seeing what they do with that. And then a very, very interesting... I keep saying interesting, but... Oh, it, it, is it, it was. It's fun to point out that mm-hmm. you know that you know Cindy, Felicia, Punisher, Logan, and Kitty, um, they've all been considered by Captain America and Director Carter for a Suicide Squad style team. Yeah, honestly, I really, really like this concept. The idea of having a team of Gwen's Rogues Gallery that she has to be sort of like the Rick Flag type enforcer for. Very interesting and like such a great concept. They really just threw it out there at the end here and then immediately sort of pulled back on it. But I think they put that in place on the off chance that the next person who took over this book, whether or not they wanted to use that and have it be a book where Gwen teams up with those rogues and stuff. Obviously not the direction they went in, but personally, I'd love to see that. What an idea. That is mm, been fun. If they were um, the Earth 65 version of the Thunderbolts, then that could be something. Yeah, it's I I haven't read any Thunderbolts, I'm afraid, but but yeah, it does it does feel in that same vein of having a team of villains, sort of working together and teaming up, and it's sort of it's a more motley crew. It's more um I don't want to say disposable. It's more smaller, lower tier characters. But I kind of find it unusual how Craven wasn't one of the uh, inmates or one of the people considered for um. I'm just going to call it the team. Yeah, he wasn't captured. He did the thing, back in Weapon of Choice, and he made it out fine. He didn't didn't get arrested. He did his debt to Punisher and just went off and lived his mansion life. Presumably, it's why he didn't make the cut here. Or since, uh, to our knowledge, Felicia Hardy doesn't have her bad luck powers, and yet she's considered for the team. Yeah, I mean, maybe she's just... They like how she fights. Yeah, and there's that like skill set that she has with the thieving, that like world class thief. The designated pickpocket. Yeah, like she'd be sort of she'd be able to do a lot of sneaky stuff that maybe the other people on this team, Cindy's more of what, like cerebral character. Punisher Logan and Kitty are all brawlers. Cindy's the brain, Felicia's the pickpocket, Punisher's the guns. Logan and Kitty are the, uh, the brutalizers. Yeah, yeah. And I like, um, I'd be interested in see how those personalities play off each other as well. I think there'd be a lot of infighting. Yeah, yeah. Fun infighting, though. But yeah, pretty interesting concept to see if they decide to revisit Earth 65. Yeah, honestly, the, all the stuff that happens in the prison. It, it feels like they could have done a whole arc along that, that just Gwen being in that prison and all of the internal politics of it felt like they rushed through that time jump there maybe but i think uh since this ended on uh latour's own terms like who are we to say no yeah um i guess you know that's what he sort of wanted to do so but i'd love to see there's a lot of stuff that happens in the prison that i 
would like to see fleshed out more of. I want to see more of this rogues gallery. I want to see more of um, sort of the concepts they're playing around with, and and definitely some of the stuff they touch upon. Like I, I really like that bit where Gwen reflects upon how they're very much victims of circumstances, and the idea that her prison sentence could ever have been fair for the conditions of, of you know what the prison is like, and what most you know most prisons share qualities with it isn't fair or kind or you know like and 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 she sort of reflects on that a little bit and i thought that was quite was a, there was a really sort of interesting message to put in there and quite compelling really with the the way they use these characters and and introduce the justice system overall because they spend a lot of time with the cops obviously but this is the first time they've actually gone to prison proper and really think about that so i i'm, I'm glad they had that in there was there anything else on the list that we needed to address? Um, I mean, I'm happy with that and what we've discussed there. Um, if you wanted to move on, that's okay. Unless unless you wanted to talk more about Like our whole retrospective? Uh, yeah, our retrospective here. So our big sort of concluding thoughts, really. Um, yeah, so uh, this is the last arc of, like as we've said, of the Latour, uh, Rodriguez, Renzi creative team's did we say 40 issues, 39 issues? It's 40. You got Edge, the mini, mm-hmm. and then this whole thing. Yeah, okay. Okay, so so all of that. And it's, it's a lot, and it's the end of an era. It's the end of a sort of, I think, pretty much all these character arcs sort of have a resolution here. And, and there's a lot to reflect on. Um, but yeah, um, and overall, it's been, it's been good. There's a lot of specific arcs that take a long time to come together you know we've mentioned matt murdoch um the symbiote's a really sort of big example of it stuff like uh the punisher yeah and also gwen coming to terms with her power loss yeah gwen coming to terms with the palace uh, power loss gwen coming to terms with her guilt and and trying to work out constructive ways to to direct her sense of responsibility and 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 all of that takes time and and they took their time with it and i get the feeling that at least from the start of greater power they knew that they would have this much time and and they considered a lot of this and just sort of started layering it in and i think it pays off in a really satisfying way i like and really enjoy rereading pretty much every single one of these arcs um with the exception of sitting in a tree <laughs> um yeah it's 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 all really great stuff and i'm you know i i think this is probably one of the you know really good examples of how you can have a very character defining run um and and how giving a creative team um time and space and oxygens and to sort of just do that can really pay off Um, i think the payoff in the last couple of arcs has been great and to have that sort of catharsis for all of these things going off has been really satisfying um it's good stuff, and and particularly the degree to which the characters change is very notable, because you can have thirty four issues of an ongoing for a character, and they just won't change. They um, they'll just do a you know like a new arc, new villain, rinse and repeat a few times, and they'll end up in the same status quo, and without a meaningful evolution to how a character views their place in the world and to their material and practical conditions within that world resulting from the choices they're making um 
I find a lot of these stories to be quite unsatisfying. A lot of like the really, really big comic book lines, very, very popular characters that have been around 60 years, often end up like that, where you read an arc and nothing changes, and you read an arc, and the character doesn't meaningfully or substantially change. That is not the case with the Spider-Gwen run. Every arc you read here, you feel like the characters, and not just Gwen, the whole, all the characters, the Mary Janes, uh, Uncle Ben and Aunt May, George Stacy, and the villains as well, every single one of the villains, sort of, they are constantly challenging how they see the world and the actions and choices they make leave them in very, very different places to where they started. Um, so obviously Gwen goes from being this uh, outlaw vigilante to losing her powers, to working for the hand, to creating and bonding with the symbiote, to getting mastery over it and, and deciding to sort of place her, uh, her sort of powers more constructively, try and be more transparent with her powers so that she doesn't abuse them. And, and I think that's a really interesting way to sort of put that character in that place. And George Stacy sort of realized that his place with the police was a negative one and he was having a negative effect in the world and him stepping away from that, even though the, sort of the violent consequences of that is very compelling. Uh, you know, Uncle Ben's story of becoming apathetic and like vengeful is again, very interesting. Matt Murdock not letting go of the power that he has. All of these stories I find very, very compelling. And this is to say nothing of like the quality of the dialogue or or the art or any of that. But but at a conceptual level, I think this really should be the approach of more comic books to to really consider the choices that characters are making and the way that each of them view the world and how that differs and in, is in similar and um, you know every single art they do. It's like even this week with Gwen Six One Seven, a very satisfying sort of arc presented to us for this character very cathartic one especially for a character that was written poorly and treated poorly by by writers in the narrative back in the day yeah it's a very it's it's very satisfying to read spider-gwen it's very cathartic to see the emotions um sort of articulated in a very intelligent way and to look at the different practicals ways which practical ways in which we sort of project our emotions out into the world uh, and and the way that we view the world and what we value is a very, I think that should be what I think Spider-Gwen is about. That's what I think a lot of comics should be about, particularly Spider-Gwen. And I do think the Ghost Spider-Gwen sort of continues a lot of this sort of at a conceptual level of continuing to challenge how a character views the world, their place in the world and how their actions impact the world around them and their, their material sort of status quo. Um, and and I and yeah, that's that's my thoughts on the Spider-Man. I think you pretty much took almost everything I was gonna say. Oh, I'm sorry, but um, pretty much um, you know, Spider-Gwen is what got me into comics on the regular, mostly because you know I found it very relatable. You know, me being when I first bought comics on the regular, I must have been um eighteen, nineteen at the time. I could relate because you know, being all angsty and such. But at the same time, there's lighthearted moments in there. And I thought that Gwen having these real life problems, even though I don't really have super villain problems. Right, right. But no, she's she's very uh, relatable, probably even more so than Peter Parker right now. 
Yeah, I think Peter Park is in a very strange place because obviously he suffers from the sort of status quo atrophy where he's stuck in this endless loop of getting reset and reset and reset to a very samey status quo. And he would benefit from having this. I'm interested to see what they do in the new run, actually, what they do with him. Yeah, and Gwen, in contrast, her status quo is always changing, always evolving. Like, it makes her a better person out of it, like, for better or for worse, but yeah. mostly better. Absolutely. And, and yeah, just, just to even, at, like, like you say, uh, even, even at, like, an aesthetic level, Gwen is a very relatable character going around wearing a pair of chooks and a hoodie um, and eating corn dogs in and of itself is very, very relatable. And she's, you know, like, we, you know, we highlight the stuff with the profanity, but because that is a very relatable thing, but it's a surprise, I think, to a lot of people because there's a particular voice I think comic characters get stuck with that Gwen Stacy really breaks free from in the Spider-Gwen comics. And she has a very unique sort of normal, casual sounding dialogue. And, and I think that sort of maintain, is, is, is true for a lot of the characters. And they maintain that through the run. And she feels like just a cool character to read about um, and to relate to. Um, and I think that really, really helps push this run to a good place. And if any of you listening liked what we've read so far, you can purchase the whole omnibus this includes absolutely everything that we've read so far. It's on sale now. Yes. Um, actually, I don't know if we planned it out like that, but we did read every single issue that is included in the Omnibus. That is what we've read. That's the uh, ongoing, uh, the miniseries, Edge of Spider-Verse number two, uh, the Spider-Gwen annual, and even the all-new Wolverine annual. All of that, which we have read, is in that omnibus. I think the only thing that's not is Night Gwen, which obviously is because it just came out and it's not this character, but pretty much everything from this, this sort of this whole era we've read is in that omnibus, and it's you know it's a lovely hardcover. And yeah, if it's a book you like, that's that's the probably the cheapest way you can buy it physically right now. Yeah, I even bought it myself. I only had to pay cover price one twenty five, and that's here in Canada, which is much better than the uh, Canadian one fifty seven. Yeah, that's um, it's one fifty seven at retail price. Yes, so go to your local comic shops to get it for cover price. Yes, I'm I'm stressed that Canada money sounds a lot more than it is. I realize. Yes. Okay. But yeah, uh, very, very good comic book. But yeah, is, is it best um, best bang for your book would be the hardcover omnibus. The cheapest way to read it legally digitally uh, would be on Marvel Unlimited. It's all on there. There's also other digital ser- digital services like Comixology, and, um, and you, you could just buy the regular trade paperbacks if you didn't want to buy the whole hardcover collection. Um, if you can find the trade paperbacks, if they're still in stores but yeah but um, yeah but if you really enjoy hardcover or an easier way of getting all of these trades at once especially the ones that are out of print the omni is the much better way to go yes yeah absolutely but yeah it's the end of an era it's literally the end of an era we are now moving into mcguire's comic books that she wrote for spider Gwen ghost spider so we'll be doing that we'll be doing the debate around the ghost spider name change will be doing the shenanigans that went down that meant that we didn't get a complete run and yeah we'll be looking at that creative team and the decisions they take with the characters and um, what they keep and what they don't keep and what new stuff they add in and it's yeah it's going to be it's going to be interesting i am looking forward to it shall i start giving the whole spiel to close out yeah shoot um should i explain the delay again <laughs> um 
yeah, Pax is gonna go vampire hunting next week. <laughs> yeah, I'm going, for vampire. I'm going to Whitby, uh, which is a seaside town in England. Uh, incidentally, where um, all of the law—I say all of the law—a good chunk of the law from Bram Stoker, uh, the original vampire, um, sort of like big sort of popularizer and writer of uh, Dracula, sell a lot of stuff in Whitby. So yeah, it's it's gonna be fun. I am gonna have fish and chips. I am gonna walk around. Uh, creepy old ruined abbeys uh and take boat tours and think about the the vampires yeah you know <laughs> but how funny you're gonna go like um attempt to find a vampire since next episode will be all about cosmic vampire conflict since uh we're gonna be reading spider getter and that's just me sounding metal <laughs> right <laughs> yeah I, I i i'll um bring home an inheritor that's that's what i'm gonna do it just don't die when you capture that inheritor. I I hope not. I will bring garlic bread to defend myself with, so I'll be fine. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's going to be good. I But yeah, that does mean I will be away for a week. It does mean that we're going to have a delay again. I'm sorry. But you know, it's okay. So yeah, we'll, next episode we'll be reading Spider-Geddon. This is actually the tie-in issues. It's the first four issues of the Spider-Gwen Ghost Spider run, the beginning of the Sean and Maguire era. Yeah, so we won't be reading the main Spider-Geddon event, uh, at least not next episode. We may do it some somewhere down the line. Um, like, we might this... reference some plot points, but we'll probably won't do the full thing until much later. Yeah, we'll, we, yeah, we'll, we'll obviously uh, give any... There's not many, but if there are any details which come up which need clarifying, we'll cover those. But by and large, this is a fairly self-contained arc. It occurs mostly on its own earth um so yeah yeah because the whole thing i've written up here is that you know after gwen's drawn into the second inheritor conflict she separated from her friends the web warriors and winds up in another world where she has to face a dangerously personal new foe yes absolutely yeah a uh, very mm -hmm. i look forward to seeing that it's going to be a familiar face that you all probably might be uh familiar with uh-huh <laughs> yeah and uh, another tidbit is that next episode uh carol ann of at and comics on twitter and another co-host from the comics collective podcast will be guesting on our spider get an episode yes super pleased to that uh, to be having carol ann on that's gonna be great yes yeah, it's gonna be um, exciting to have her on very very cool person famous on comic twitter and um uh, excellent poster and uh yeah yeah very 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 much looking forward to that it's gonna be good as always you know we're gonna put the links in the description of what to buy and where to read them and also the uh, spider gwen ghost spider reading list there's also going to be a reddit thread that's going to be posted after this airs, so you can reply to it when you read along and uh, if you had any questions for us or if you want to send in your thoughts on the show or read along uh, we are at Twitter at GS Groupies. We also have an email, ghostspidergroupies at gmail.com. And we recently started a coffee page. Yeah, yeah, we've got a coffee page going now. So um, if you would like to uh, send us money at all, if you like the podcast, if you want to support with um, the subscription for the podcast hosting, it's something we pay out of our own pocket. We do not make money from any other aspect of this so um if you donate to us on coffee that would go towards uh paying for that subscription um so yeah it's just to help us keep the lights on this show for a little bit longer absolutely yeah 
So uh, yeah, great stuff. Great stuff. I think is that. I think that's it for today. So thank you everybody for listening. We uh, we hope to see you in a couple of weeks and hope that Pax doesn't die during vampire hunting. Mm-hmm. No, no my, my secret hope is that I get bitten and get to become a vampire. That's the, that's the real dream. All right. So, um, yep. Once again, for this week, I've been Abigail. And I'm Pax. Bye, everybody. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>